Listener supported. WNYC Studios. This is Politics with Amy Walter on The Takeaway, and we are less than a month away from the midterm elections. Is your internal election clock ticking away? You know, mine is. Of course, mine never stops. Anyway, it also means we're two years out from the 2016 campaign, if you can believe that, when then-candidate Donald Trump ran on a series of promises to the American people. Now, the president, of course, isn't on the ballot this year, but a midterm election is kind of like those midterm tests you took back in school. They're the first real assessment of all you've done in class for the first part of the semester. And they're supposed to get you ready for the big one, finals. Voters use the midterm elections to send a message to the president. They take a look back at the last two years and grade him. The more unhappy they are with the president, the more likely they vote against members of his party in November. If they're happy with him, they support the members of his party. One way voters evaluate how a president is doing is to look at whether he's fulfilled the promises he made as a candidate. But we also know voters evaluate a president on more than just policy. They look at things like leadership, temperament, how he comports himself in the job. But today's episode will specifically look at what he said he was going to do on the campaign trail and whether he's come through on those commitments. And there's a lot to get into. From the border wall... No new walls, not nothing of these new uh, border wall prototypes. To repealing the Affordable Care Act. The president likes to say the law is dead, and then in the next breath he likes to say, but we fixed it. To bringing back American jobs and jump-starting the economy. It's better than it was, and I, I do think that he gets some credit for that. And renegotiating our trade deals. I mean, it's it's in the D or F range. And putting conservative justices on the Supreme Court who would protect the Second Amendment and overturn Roe versus Wade. The jury is still out. We begin with foreign policy. So I do believe that Trump has had an extremely consequential foreign policy presidency so far in ways that are often underrated, by the way, both by critics of his and by supporters. That's Susan Glasser, staff writer for The New Yorker. He has, almost single-handedly, because even his own party largely does not support much of this agenda on foreign policy in particular, he has more or less single-handedly reoriented American foreign policy, it seems to me, away from a rules-based or values-based foreign policy and towards an extremely transactional, unilateral view of the United States in the world. It's frankly much more akin to the worldview that you hear from Vladimir Putin in terms of his theory of international relations. A much more Machiavellian, great powers, the might rule, the strong do as they will kind of view of the world. President Trump ran on a few key promises when it comes to foreign policy. One, and the most important, In all world dealings, he'd put America first. The U.S. had become too attached to multinational relationships and deals that weren't directly benefiting the U.S. He also insisted that under his leadership, the world would respect us again, an idea premised on the false notion that the world did not respect the United States before. We are going to do something so good and so fast and so strong, and the world is going to respect us again, believe me. This is probably his biggest failure. By the numbers, by any objective standard, the United States has plummeted in world opinion. There are only a couple of countries in the entire world, according to the Pew Global Attitudes Survey, which is the leading kind of nonpartisan independent survey of countries around the world and how they view the United States and 
other world leaders. Only in Russia, Israel, and possibly one or two other countries is the standing of the United States better now than it was before Trump took office. And not only that, it's reversed dramatically. You actually have in Germany right now more people saying they trust Vladimir Putin and Xi Jinping to do the right thing on the world stage than Donald Trump. That's something extremely unprecedented for an American leader, even an unpopular one like George W. Bush. Trump also promised to withdraw from multilateral deals, like the Iran nuclear deal. My number one priority is to dismantle the disastrous deal with Iran. What we've seen overall from President Trump on foreign policy, I would argue, is very much of a blow-things-up approach. It's much harder to make new deals or to create a new world order or to reorient American foreign policy than it is to criticize and then withdraw from uh, existing arrangements. In particular, I would say that applies to the Iran deal, where he said it was the worst deal ever, despite the lobbying and the protestations of a number of his senior officials, such as Defense Secretary Jim Mattis, his first Secretary of State, Rex Tillerson. He eventually, after about a year of hemming and hawing, withdrew, which was what he wanted to do all along. Where does that leave us right now? In a very uncertain place. So where are we with Iran now? Because Europe has said, we're still in the deal. They're living up to the uh, rules that we set for them. So is the U.S. just kind of going it alone then? Yes. Uh, Number one, the U.S. is going it alone for now. Uh, This was a deal made between Iran and the world's six leading major powers. So that also included Russia and China, as well as Germany, France, the U.K., All of them have committed to remain within the deal. There is a new deadline that will expose, I think, the fault lines between America's closest allies in Europe and the United States on this issue coming up right before the election on November 4th. That's when the automatic, very serious sanctions against anyone doing business with Iran are supposed to kick back in. Uh, And so basically, there's a big lobbying campaign right now, pressure campaign to get European countries to pull out of doing business with Iran. As a consequence of this, Europe is talking tough, but it doesn't really have the infrastructure set up uh, to protect them from the effects of U.S. sanctions. So they're largely expected to comply with this move on Trump's part. However, the absence of a JCPOA, that was the you know bureaucratic uh, acronym for the Iran deal, the absence of that does not mean the existence of a proactive new strategy. And so, you know, it's really hard to say. For right now, essentially, we've allied the world's leading powers and our own allies against us in saying we were wrong to withdraw from it. Iran is sticking with it so far. However, it's likely to increase economic pressures on the Iranian regime. And many people believe that Trump and his new hardline national security team, uh, John Bolton and Mike Pompeo, are pursuing what some people call sort of a soft regime change strategy. One part of the world that he did say he was going to help fix was the Middle East. We're going to fix that whole problem that nobody else could fix, Israel-Palestinian challenge. Look, uh, you know, it's fair to say that you can pin a lot of things on Donald Trump, but dysfunction in the Middle East is not one of them. Uh, (laughs) The bottom line is, of course, that, you know, the the pathology of the region and the terrible situation uh, predates him. And in fact, he was welcomed by leaders there 
really with open arms among traditional U.S. allies in the Gulf and in Israel who really didn't like Barack Obama's policies, who didn't get along very well with the man, uh, and who saw in Trump either opportunistically or genuinely someone who they could get along better with, who would have a more similar worldview to theirs. So this was the one region in particular where American allies and the leaders of those countries saw a real opportunity to reset. I would say the action has been much less dramatic uh, in terms of concrete changes in the region than you might expect as a result of that. Uh, And you start to see some of the consequences of that now kicking in. For example, in Saudi Arabia, uh, Trump and his son-in-law, Jared Kushner, really not only renewed the traditional American partnership with the Saudis, but doubled down on it in a dramatic way. Uh, Jared Kushner seemed to believe that it would help uh, deliver Middle East peace. So far, that has not been forthcoming between Israel and the Palestinians. Quite the opposite, uh, by overinvesting in the young Saudi crown prince, Mohammed bin Salman, he seems to have been overruled on the issue of uh, Israel and the Palestinians, number one. Number two, uh, there's now the question of whether he has turned the country into a much more virulent form of dictatorship. And of course, everyone is concerned now about the fate of the American living journalist Jamal Khashoggi and wondering whether Trump's embrace of the current Saudi crown prince has, in fact, enabled or created a a situation where that was deemed possible by this close American ally. In Europe, candidate Trump bemoaned what he saw as an unfair NATO alliance. What I'm saying is NATO is obsolete. NATO is is obsolete and it's extremely expensive to the United States, disproportionately so. And we should readjust NATO. It's not fair to say that, as Trump has claimed, that he's gotten European allies to pay billions more for defense and that, you know, no one cared about this before he did or, you know, that we they were ripping us off or not living up to their obligations because he, he's mischaracterized almost every aspect of this. However... If you wanted to really grade on a curve here, you definitely could say that the threats or the bullying or the blustering or however you want to characterize it have produced a new awareness in Europe that they ought to ante up more for their common defense in NATO than they felt pressured to do in the past. And when it came to dealing with Kim Jong-un, Trump said it'd be nice to get along. And they said, would you speak to the leader of North Korea? I said, absolutely. Why not? Why not? And they come out. Trump would speak to him. Who the hell cares? I'll speak to anybody. Who knows? There's a 10% or a 20% chance that I can talk him out of those damn nukes because who the hell wants him to have nukes? And there's a chance. Certainly you could argue that he is engaged and has opened up a process of meaningful talks, negotiations, and dialogues with with the North Koreans. Again, not to overstate it, but I think it's, you could definitely say that's something that existed now that didn't exist in the past. And on Russia? I don't know Putin. He said nice things about me. If we got along well, that would be good. If Russia and the United States got along well and went after ISIS, That would be good. I would say that the Trump administration policy toward Russia is actually a more hawkish or muscular continuation of the second term post-2014 Obama administration policy toward Russia, i.e. after Russia invaded 
uh, its neighbor Ukraine uh, illegally annexed Crimea and uh, has generally had a much more aggressive foreign policy outside its borders. We've responded with sanctions by increasing the military presence of NATO troops, including American troops, in Eastern Europe and in those countries that border Russia and uh, increasing pressure in every way on Russia, isolating it. This is essentially the policy view, and it's, it's largely uncontroversial, right? More or less supported by Republicans and Democrats, at least among elected officials. Then there's Trump's personal predilection uh, and admiration for Vladimir Putin. There's also his repeated efforts to challenge his own security bureaucracy to do things like experiment with lifting sanctions. Often you hear people inside his administration take credit for, well, we've had even more tougher sanctions. I've heard this from many of them, which carefully elides the fact that in 2017, because they were concerned about Trump's stated preference for even considering lifting those sanctions or trading them away to Putin for something, Congress actually took a very unique vote to rebuke and constrain the president, and the Senate voted 98 to 2 to legislate those sanctions in, so he couldn't just wave his hand and withdraw them, and then to impose more sanctions. And Trump, even then, wanted not to sign them, but of course, 98 to do is a pretty veto-proof majority, so he was persuaded to sign those sanctions. So how much of his rhetoric, whether as candidate or as president, has been translated into policy? And how different is the policy that's been implemented by the Trump administration differ from the rhetoric? Well, this is, I think, the, the biggest challenge. You still hear from many inside the Trump administration's foreign policy world, essentially versions of don't pay attention to the tweets, pay attention to the policy. H.R. McMaster used to tell people that. Well, what happened to him? He got fired. Rex Tillerson used to say, well, I don't even pay attention to the tweets. The guy got fired by a tweet. So that got the world's attention. And in my view, you know, that's not a realistic thing. Anytime your analysis of foreign policy is essentially don't pay attention to the unvarnished thoughts of the most powerful man in the world, you're probably going to make some huge analytical mistakes. And I think that, you know, Trump, again, has been fairly consistent in certain areas of expressing preferences that are then translated into policy. If you didn't think he was going to withdraw from the Iran deal, as some serious foreign policy people thought or convinced themselves, you were wrong. Looking at his team right now around him, the foreign policy team around him, as you pointed out earlier, it's a very different looking team than the team that came in with him. A couple of things. Number one, do you think this team is the team that's here to stay for the rest of his presidency? And how different is this team than the one that was there in the first part of uh, Trump's first term? Well, these are good questions. Uh, I do think it's realistic to expect continued very high rates of turnover in general in Trump, not specific at all to foreign policy or national security. But, uh, you know, there's a reason for these historically high turnover rates. I think even as of this summer, something like 61 percent of all the senior uh, White House roles had already turned over. So I would expect that to continue. Number two, I do think that Trump has found in John Bolton as his national security advisor and Mike Pompeo as his secretary of state, two officials who are much more clear-eyed about what's required 
to manage Trump and to survive in the world that he's created. And so they still differ from him in some key respects on policy issues because both of them do come out of uh, maybe the very hardliner Republican establishment, but still they themselves are much more from the Republican establishment. Again, the very hardliner version of it, but then Trump himself. We don't know exactly what their interactions are with the president, but it seems to me they're both more skillful at managing their relationships with him than Tillerson and McMaster were. We pick up now on trade. Then candidate Trump ran on a message of blowing up bad deals. I'm going to tell our NAFTA partners that I intend to immediately renegotiate the terms of that agreement. I am going to withdraw the United States from the Trans-Pacific Partnership. I'm going to direct the Secretary of Commerce to identify every violation of trade agreements a foreign country is currently using to harm you, the American worker. So how has he done? You've had the very tough and very consistent in some ways anti-free trade anti-globalization and specifically anti-China views that Trump the candidate and Trump the president deploys. That's Susan Glasser again. He pulled out of the TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which was the major regional trade deal negotiated in the course of the Obama administration that was meant to be the major American and its allies' response to Chinese economic and increasingly security uh, muscle flexing in the region. There's been no clear strategy to replace that except to engage in the escalation on the economic front. And here's Alex Lawson, Law 360 senior reporter on international trade. It's definitely true to say that he has carefully gone about sort of restructuring America's trade deals. And I say carefully only in the sense that while he would tell you that these are historical, groundbreaking rewrites of past American trade deals, most people will tell you that it's a little more weedy and a little more nuanced than that. So let's get into that nuance. Most recently, of course, they have rewritten the North American Free Trade Agreement. And while it stops short of, I think, curing all the ills of the old NAFTA that Trump ran on doing, on fixing, um, it is definitely an improvement in the sense of just people conduct business differently than they did in 1994 when it came into effect. But here's the thing to understand. A lot of what they agreed to in the new NAFTA deal was already part of the Trans-Pacific Partnership Agreement negotiated under President Obama that President Trump withdrew from. And Canada and Mexico were in that agreement. That was considered Obama's NAFTA rewrite. He also promised to rewrite NAFTA on the campaign trail in 2008. Um, And that was waiting for Trump when he got there. But instead of picking it up and asking Congress to pass it, he immediately withdrew the United States from the trade agreement. He said it was terrible. He never really gave specifics on what he didn't like. So it's a little disingenuous, I think, for him to say, none of this happens without me and the way I impose these tariffs to apply pressure on them. That's just not the case. The one thing that or two issues that the Trump administration points to specifically the auto sector and on dairy and tariffs or these brand new topics that the president was able to negotiate into this new NAFTA deal. You have touched on the two, at least, that are the most different. Now, there was a lot of uh, work done on improving dairy market access into Canada in TPP. 
We got a little bit more in this new NAFTA, but it's by, you know, a couple of different decimal points. But uh, the automotive rules are very interesting. Um, it tethers tariff benefits for cars to a minimum wage of at least $16 an hour. And that is new. That was not in the TPP. Let's talk about tariffs. Early in the president's administration, there was a lot of hand-wringing, especially from folks on Wall Street, some people within the president's administration, saying, we got to stop all this tariff talk. The economy's yep. doing great. The more we talk about tariffs, the better chance that we knock this really great economy off the rails. So... The economy still seems to be doing quite well, and the president hasn't stopped talking about tariffs. Does that mean the president has succeeded in using tariffs as a tool for getting what he wants for the U.S. on trade? Well, you're correct that the economy is still very robust and growing. But I would say, and many economists will tell you, that the strength of the U.S. economy is what is shielding the president from the adverse effects of tariffs, not it's growing because of tariffs. And as far as what he was hoping to achieve, it seems entirely political to me at this point. Uh, we began by, by talking about what he campaigned on, and tough trade enforcement in the form of tariffs was part of that. He said, um, you know, I will counter unfair trade practices by several partners, namely China, but it's, it's manifested in other partners as well. And that's what's happened. But it's not really forcing anyone to the negotiating table. You know, he claims that NAFTA doesn't happen without tariffs. But as I just laid out, these are two of our closest allies. They will always sit down and talk with us. And as of now, basically what you're seeing is the tariffs beginning to take root. And the most rapid escalation has been with China. The, the tariffs now cover $250 billion worth of Chinese goods. And those are beginning to cover consumer goods. The last round of tariffs started to cover home electronics, computers, furniture, things like that. Conventional economic theory tells you that you're going to start to see prices raise on that. And even though he can go out on the campaign trail and say, you see, I impose these tariffs because I'm at work for you. The forward thinking you know, voter will say, OK, yes, you did that. But what does it actually do for us? That's sort of where we're at on tariffs here. It's true that he's imposed them and it's true that he kept to his word on that. But on a broader scale, I don't know that there's anything they can point to and say the tariffs got you X. You know, there's really no there there. The other thing the president talked a lot about as a candidate was the issue of the trade deficit and how large it was. Has there been a significant change in the trade deficit since he's been president? Yeah, the significant change is that it has actually gone up uh, quite a mm. bit since he's come into office. It's been an interesting tightrope for critics to walk because while he said, I'm working on reducing a trade deficit, um, it continues to climb. But at the same time, critics also said when he made those arguments, the trade deficit, if it's high, isn't really like necessarily a bad thing for our economy. In many contexts, right. it can be the mark of a very healthy economy because consumers are emboldened to buy things. The Trump administration and President Trump himself continues to frame this as sort of a like a bank account, right? It's just like, look at us losing all this money, e either not understanding or willfully distorting the fact that it's actually just private companies and citizens who want to buy things with their money. It's not like we're flushing money down the drain. We have great purchasing power in this country and we're using it. The other thing the president talked a lot about as a candidate, and he still does today, which is to say, listen, I'm a free trader. I'm not anti-free trade. I'm just fair trade. If you had to grade this president on a free trade scale, where would you put him? Oh, I mean, 
I mean, it's it's in the D or F range. I don't understand how anybody could look at two years of like rapidly and largely unprecedented, at least since the 1930s, largely unprecedented escalation of, of tariffs, both with allies and with countries we're more contentious with and say, this is a free trade president. Um, so I think, uh, I mean, I think that's such a foolish statement uh, to say with a straight face that you're a free trader. Alex Lawson, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Alex Lawson is senior reporter on international trade for Law 360. I am going to be the greatest jobs president that God ever created. Remember that. Candidate Trump outlined two goals to measure that jobs promise. Over the next 10 years, our economic team estimates that under our plan, the economy will average 3.5% growth and create a total of 25 million new jobs. In 2017, GDP growth was over 4%, on pace with his goal. Here's Jim Tankersley, a tax and economics reporter for The New York Times. It was over 4%, but that's just one quarter. The quarter before that was like 2%. So we're sort of on pace right now, most forecasters think, to about 3%, which is good comparatively for the last 10 years. That's faster growth than we've seen. And so it's not what the president promised. It's not the supercharged, sustained 3.5%, which is really hard to do, particularly at this point in an economic cycle. But it's better than it was. And I, I do think that he gets some credit for that. Okay, let's tackle number two. 25 million jobs. As a candidate, President Trump said that he would create 25 million jobs over the course of 10 years. Are we on track to see that kind of job growth? So I I believe we're at right around 4 million jobs from the start of his presidency. And I will say, first off, that is just like a straight line continuation of the job creation pace that we were on for the average of the last several years before his presidency. That's it. It is very difficult to imagine that you will continue to see that kind of expansion absent more workers coming online. I mean, there just aren't going to be enough workers to fill those jobs. We're at three point what seven percent unemployment. There are probably some workers who haven't been looking for work who will come in off the sidelines, but not enough to keep this kind of pace up for six more years, most economists think. And so unless you have, for example, a sudden surge of immigrants who want to do these jobs, you are unlikely to see that level of job creation. Finally, this discussion about more jobs in the manufacturing sector and in sectors like coal mining, what have we seen there? So again, here, here is a mixed picture with some real successes that the president can claim. Manufacturing had a pretty terrible, not just recession, but a pretty anemic recovery from the recession. And that has sped up. We have seen more manufacturing jobs added and a real acceleration of that over the last year. So the president is claiming a lot of credit for that. On mining, if you're looking at oil and gas drilling, we've seen a bounce back, which is almost certainly correlated with the uh, spike in oil prices again. So we see more of that. Coal mining, which is a thing that he really did focus on a lot, has not come back. It it has very small gains in certain small regions, and it is not this big success story. We also heard a lot about this president is a populist. 
and the fear among many economists and, of course, a lot of Republican traditionalists was this is going to tank the economy. So how do you rank him on the scale of populist or economic nationalist, uh, his rhetoric versus what's actually happening uh, via his administration on policy? I mean, he's done a lot of the things he said he would do, but he has led with a lot of the things that almost any other Republican running against him in 2016 for the nomination would have also done. You know, Jeb Bush would have signed the tax cut bill that Donald Trump signed, and it might not have looked all that different. I'll say this, though. Uh, The president is claiming credit for the economy in saying it's entirely because of him. But it's also true that other fundamentals of the economy have shifted since he took office that he has no control over. Oil prices, again, being a big one, that have just reignited growth of a big and important sector in the economy. So the idea, as he has said a bunch of times, that if his opponent had won, if Hillary Clinton had won, we'd be in a recession right now, seems very unsupported by what we know from the rest of the data. So I guess you can say that the most pro-Trump way you can put it is he has pursued a bunch of policies that are pro-growth and that have helped the economy grow faster. And I think the most skeptical Trump, you could say, is that he inherited uh, the start of a parade and has done a very good job throwing himself in front of it and, you know, tossing some fuel back to the to the floats in the form of fiscal stimulus. And so critically, what has not happened is the economy has not tanked. I mean, all those predictions that he would crash the economy have not come true. And even his critics have to concede the economy is good right now and Americans feel pretty good about it. I do want to mention one other thing, though, which is that he also promised that Americans would be seeing huge increases in their paychecks. And we don't see that yet because inflation has has also risen over the last year. And so there has been, for the typical American worker, really no wage gain over the last 12 months. For a president who made you know, a populist pitch to workers, it's not all that reassuring to say to them, corporate profits are at an all-time high. And we promise your wages will get there soon. Jim Takersley, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Today's podcast is sponsored by Babbel. People around the world are learning new languages with the Babbel language learning app. Learn Spanish, French, Italian, German, Russian, Swedish, and more with Babbel's 10 to 15 minute lessons. You'll learn through interactive dialogues, speech recognition, and fun trainers and quizzes. And in a few short weeks, you can be speaking a new language with confidence. And Babbel is available as an app or online. And right now, you can try Babbel for free. Go to Babbel.com and download the app and try it for free. That's right, Babbel, B-A-B-B-L-E dot com, or download the app to try it for free. Babbel. This week on the New Yorker Radio Hour, the fewer on college campuses over the war in Gaza. Students have tried to have dialogue over and negotiate differences in how they see the world, even as they respond to tragedies and crimes overseas. Students and faculty from Harvard University on the New Yorker Radio Hour from WNYC Studios. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. .com. I'm going to appoint justices of the United States Supreme Court who will follow the Constitution. I'm going to save your Second Amendment. 
We are going to save your Second Amendment, believe me. Do you want to see the court overturn Roe v. Wade? Well, if we put another two or three justices on, that will happen, because I am putting pro-life justices on the court. Roe v. Wade and the Second Amendment were two of the criteria that then-candidate Trump said he'd use in picking new Supreme Court justices. He's already had the chance to follow through on those promises. Twice now. And with me to break down how Trump has done so far with the Supreme Court, as well as the lower courts, is Amy Howe, co-founder of SCOTUS Blog. He promised to appoint people who are going to be really good legal scholars, and he certainly has done that. I don't think anybody questions the academic, the professional qualifications of Justice Gorsuch or Justice Kavanaugh. As far as his promise to appoint somebody who was going to overturn Roe versus Wade, who was going to be strong on the Second Amendment, the jury is still out because one important thing to remember is the Supreme Court doesn't get to just wake up one morning and decide, hey, we're going to overturn Roe versus Wade. The case has to come to them and they have to then, you know, have briefs, hear oral arguments and then issue a decision. One of the president's other promises was to appoint justices who are going to be like Justice Antonin Scalia, whom Justice Gorsuch replaced. And and I think that that has actually borne out. He's conservative, but he's a little bit iconoclastic. He shares some of the same views uh, as Justice Scalia in terms of, you know, perhaps reading the text of the statute, the text of the Constitution. Frequently, that will veer in a conservative direction, but sometimes it'll veer in a, a, a ways that, that many people might not have expected. And an example is a case that the Supreme Court decided at the end of this past term. Uh, Justice Gorsuch actually joined the court's four more liberal justices in a ruling for immigrants. The question was whether or not this statute governing deportation was so vague that it was unconstitutional. And Justice Gorsuch said yes, and that is exactly the kind of ruling that we would have expected, perhaps from Justice Antonin Scalia. Um, you know, I think that on the issues that a lot of conservatives are really going to care about, like uh, abortion or, or gun rights or f- affirmative action, although we don't know for sure, that, that Justice Gorsuch and Justice Kavanaugh are likely to, to have fairly similar views, but they're not identical. We wouldn't expect them necessarily to march in lockstep. And one thing that you can point to is that Justice Kavanaugh has said that his one of his judicial heroes was Chief Justice William Rehnquist, who is more sort of a, a traditional conservative, perhaps more like Chief Justice John Roberts, who clerked for Chief Justice Rehnquist. Let's move to the lower courts for a minute, because that is one place in which I didn't hear the president talk a lot about this on the campaign trail, but he certainly has had a tremendous impact. It's an incredible imprint. I mean, he's really off to such a fast start for for a variety of reasons. I I think on the one hand, the Republican and the Federalist Society machine to put judges, to nominate judges and put them on the Supreme Court is an incredibly well-oiled one. This was something that really jumped out at me, actually, when I was reading all of Brett Kavanaugh's emails, was the process within the White House Counsel's Office to identify possible vacancies and and think about who's going to do that, that I just don't think Democratic administrations do in the same way. So it's a well-oiled machine. There were vacancies when he took office, in no small part because the Republican Senate had slowed down the process of confirming President Obama's nominees. And so I don't have the exact up-to-date statistics, but as of September, he had already put 26 judges on the federal courts of appeals. President Obama, to give you a point of comparison, put 55 on the courts of appeals in his eight years. It is going to change the makeup of the federal courts, swing them significantly to the right in in a way that's going to have a lasting impact for, for decades. 
Amy, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. It was fun. Amy Howe is the co-founder of SCOTUS Blog. Somebody said the other day, what's the first thing you're going to do? Well, we're going to work immediately on repealing Obamacare. Since the campaign, President Trump has promised to repeal the Affordable Care Act, otherwise known as Obamacare. Julie Rovner is chief Washington correspondent for Kaiser Health News and host of the What the Health podcast. She tells us how well he's done so far. Well, the administration has done quite a bit. Actually, so did Congress. The big thing that Congress did was in the tax bill, after they were unable to pass their repeal and replace legislation, they eliminated the penalty for not having health insurance, the individual mandate penalty. The president also cut off federal funding, also for a controversial or at least a contested part of the law that gave special discounts to lower income people, people with incomes below two and a half times poverty. Although in the end, the insurance industry was able to find a workaround for that that ended up giving not only those people discounts, but some other people discounts too. The other big thing the administration has done is it allowed different kinds of insurance plans with basically lesser benefits than are required under Obamacare. Um, They're called short-term plans, and some of them are called association health plans. And the concern is that healthier people will move into these kinds of plans because they're cheaper, but the problem is they don't offer very much, and sometimes it's not entirely clear what they don't offer until you discover that you need something. So those are sort of the big things that have happened to the law in the last year. Um, The president likes to say the law is dead, and then in the next breath he likes to say, but we fixed it. And he also talked a lot as a candidate saying that the health care premiums are going up. One point he said they're going up 40, 50, 55 percent. There's still talk from the White House and Republicans that premiums are still skyrocketing. What do we know about premiums on the exchanges at this point? Well, actually, very interestingly, premiums next year for 2019 are going to go down slightly, about one and a half percent. The average premium in the the states that are run by the, the federal government, which is most of them, What analysts say is that they would have gone down considerably more if not for some of the changes that the administration has made. So the administration is trying to have it both ways. It's like, look, we made premiums go down and actually other things made premiums go down. Their actions made premiums mostly go up. The other thing we see is a change in polling and perceptions of the Affordable Care Act back during the campaign plurality of voters said they disapprove of the law. Now, here we are two years later, and a majority, not significant, but a smaller majority, say that they support the Affordable Care Act. So how how do you explain that? Uh, I feel like 2017 and the fight over repealing the law was basically the the marketing plan that the Obama administration Mm -hmm. never had for the law. It taught people what was in it. Um, Basically, it taught people what was in it by suggesting what they were going to lose, uh, particularly things like protections for pre-existing conditions, expansions of Medicaid that had helped a lot of middle class people, not just poor people, little class people who are, you know, uh, being expected to take care of their aging parents. Um, Their Medicaid has proved to be much more popular than I think Republicans realized. Um, so it, it was. It goes to much more. The, the law is much larger than just the 5% of people who are in these individual markets buying insurance. And I think people actually learned just as it was getting ready to go away that, hmm, maybe these are things we actually would like to keep around. So what happens 
in 2019. The Republicans have said, if we keep control of Congress, we're going to go at it again. We're going to take another repeal vote. You have Democrats, many of them running this year on something they call Medicare for all, saying that they are going to make that a priority should they take control of Congress. So, Julie, can you help us understand what could really possibly happen in 2019? It's interesting that sort of the health debate is bifurcating, you know, whereas the Affordable Care Act was intended to be a middle-of-the-road, moderate plan, market-based. They could attract some moderate Republicans, which in the end they didn't, but that was that was the idea. Now we're seeing sort of both sides going to their corners. Republicans mm-hmm. saying, you know, yes, we want to get rid of this whole thing and start over with what we don't know. Democrats are saying, yeah, maybe this compromise thing didn't work. We want to have Medicare for all, single payer, universal coverage, call it what you will. But because I think people are frustrated with the state of the healthcare system right now, even if premiums are moderating, out of pocket expenses are going up, people mm-hmm. are paying more, or they perceive that they are paying more. Healthcare is simply too expensive. And they're thinking that, yes, the Affordable Care Act was a nice thing, but people are still hurting and we need to do something more dramatic. So, you know, what you end up with and are, are, are these sort of polar opposites. And it's hard to see where there could be any middle ground where something could pass, at least in the immediate future. The discussion about Medicare for all has been very active on the Democratic side. The president himself took to USA Today. He penned an op-ed where he argued that this proposal of Medicare for all is going to totally destroy Medicare as we know it for seniors and that it's basically a form of socialism. What do we know about the president's plans for Medicare, uh, especially since we know that this is a big driver of government spending. And there seems to be discussion every year about its potential bankrupting the country or running out of money. So where does he seem to be going with discussions on this? Well, I'm actually surprised that this didn't come up until now. Medicare has been a uh, a traditional issue, sort of Medicare scare tactics have been traditional issue for Republicans in midterms um, because older people tend to vote in larger numbers in midterms. And this goes back to 2010 when the Republicans were trying to, you know, undermine the Affordable Care Act. They were not so much arguing about the, the parts of the law that we think of as Obamacare. They were arguing about all the money that the Affordable Care Act cut out of Medicare. Um, ironically, in the interim, the Republicans, when they got into office, um, said, yeah, those Medicare cuts that were in the Affordable Care Act, which were mostly cuts to provider payments for beneficiaries, they actually got more benefits out of that law. But there were reductions in payments to hospitals and doctors and for a variety of other things. And the Republicans decided that they were going to keep those cuts because they made sense and because they needed the money. Uh, Interestingly, uh, President Trump's own budget recommends more cuts to Medicare, again, mostly to provide payments. Um, But for the president to then go out and bash the Democrats for having cut Medicare and the Affordable Care Act, yeah, that that doesn't really work for the Republicans. Now, the argument that Medicare for all will undermine Medicare is a a relatively new one. This seems to be the the favorite Republican line of attack. It's like they will not only make America, you know, a socialist program, they will get rid of Medicare for seniors, too. Um, At least under most of the Medicare for all bills we've seen, seniors would get more benefits and have to pay less. How the country could afford it is a debate that needs to be had, but it's a little bit of an of an odd scare tactic to say that that seniors would lose Medicare if the country went to Medicare for everybody. Julie Rapner, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. 
We end the hour with one of President Trump's biggest promises of all, to curtail both illegal and even some legal immigration. One part of that plan? Donald J. Trump is calling for a total and complete shutdown of Muslims entering the United States until our country's representatives can figure out what the hell is going on. After a series of injunctions and court cases, the Supreme Court ruled earlier this year that the administration's third travel ban on mostly Muslim nations can, in fact, move forward. So on that, there's been some success. He also promised to go after sanctuary cities. Cities that refuse to cooperate with federal authorities will not receive taxpayer dollars, and we will work with Congress to pass legislation to protect those jurisdictions that do assist federal authorities. But just earlier this month, a judge found that the Trump administration's efforts to stop federal grants from going to jurisdictions with sanctuary city legislation to be unconstitutional. His administration has also ramped up ICE enforcement, cut down on the number of refugees admitted to the country, and put in place the zero tolerance and family separation policy at the border, a policy they later had to reverse through executive order after backlash. And we should note, there are still children being held in federal immigration detention. But the immigration promise most important to his supporters? You know it. I will build a great, great wall on our southern border, and I will have Mexico pay for that wall. Mark my words. Build that wall. Build that wall. Build that wall. Build that wall. If you watch a Trump rally today, you would think the wall is well underway. Trump supporters even hold up signs that read, finish that wall. You know, we've already started. We got 1.6 billion. We're fixing a lot of it. And we're going to get it finished sooner than anyone would believe. Michelle Morisco is senior editor of the Fronteras desk for KJZZ and works along the border. I asked him how Trump is doing on this biggest of promises. He actually announced it during his candidacy announcement. So this isn't just a cornerstone of his campaign. He announced that he was going to run to be the president based in part off this border wall. He promised a great wall. He said that nobody builds better walls than him. Um, he builds them inexpensively. It would be a great wall, specifically on the southern border. And the final point on that was that he would make Mexico pay for that wall. And now here we are a couple years later. What is on the border now? Is there a wall there? Does it look different than it did back in 2016? Well, and it's becoming a matter of definition. But right now, I'll give you the breakdown. So Mexico and the U.S. share a 2,000-mile boundary. About 650 miles of that have some sort of fence. And that's that's two types. Uh, there's either the bollard-style walls, which are uh, bars of steel set about eh, four inches apart, going up 15 or so feet high and, and underground along parts of the U.S.-Mexico border. And then the other half of those 650 miles is, is uh, we, we call it Normandy fence. Um, these are X-shaped uh, uh, crossbars or railroad rail that's been welded. This is intended to stop cars, not people. Um, 10, 12 years ago, we had a big problem with people just driving into the U.S., let alone walking. So the vehicle barriers were designed to stop that sort of movement. This was primarily drug traffickers. Uh, they worked. But this leaves 1,350 miles 
wide open. That's canyons, that's uh, riverbanks, and that's uh, flat, wide open areas that uh, have no real physical barrier there separating them from Mexico because you can't. A lot of that is constantly moving. You know, you're, you can't build a fence on a river when the riverbanks keep moving on you. The other piece of this promise was that, don't worry, Mexico will pay for this. Has there been any movement at all in any real negotiations for Mexico actually funding in some way construction of this wall? No, no. Um, the closest that anyone has gotten to talking about Mexico paying for the wall is some have suggested uh, putting a penalty on undocumented immigrants. Others have suggested going after Sinaloan drug cartel owners in Mexico who've been arrested or here in the U.S. who've been extradited. But as far as Mexico formally cutting a check or making any sort of payment, no, no, it just has not been a sober conversation that's taken place in those fortresses of diplomacy. So where are we on the, on the funding for this and how did we get here? You got to go back to 2005. Border fences and walls started being erected along primarily the Arizona border. And by 2008, when President Barack Obama took office, it sped up. And that's when they finished those 650 miles. Now we're, we're getting these same styles. We're, we're not talking about the president's big, beautiful wall. We're talking the same prototypes that were put up 10 years ago are going up. In fact, this week, the Homeland Security Department started building new gates at the border in the southernmost part of Texas. It's the same style of wall. It's just now being talked about as if it's a new project, but it's not. Yeah, this money was, what you're saying is it was already allocated and would have been going up whether Donald Trump was president or not? Well, yeah, Congress, uh, Congress approved $1.6 billion for border security and enhancements uh, for this year's budget, right? Mm. And out of that, they're, what they were talking about, and they very specifically worded it, that they wanted existing infrastructure projects. No new walls, not, nothing of these new uh, border wall prototypes currently sitting in San Diego area, but rather tried and tested true bollard style walls and, and Norman defense to be added along along parts of the border. So any new fencing or barrier of any sort that has gone up since Donald Trump is president, can he adequately define that as a success for his pledge to put a wall all across the southern border? No. And, and I'm going back to specifically to his executive order. His executive order from January of 2017 mandated uh, very specific types of walls that what's going up now does not fit the definition of. Now, if you ask the politicians and people in charge of, for example, Homeland Security Secretary Christian Nielsen, uh, this is what she said last spring where she was talking about this being Trump's new wall. To us, it's all new wall. If there is a wall before that needs to be replaced, it's being replaced by a new wall. 
So this is the Trump border wall. What they're saying there is that, yes, it's Trump's border wall. So it's the border wall. However, it's, it's not because when you look at the when you look at what the executive order signed off on, like what they what they contracted people to build were prototypes in San Diego that are supposed to be, supposed to be very specific types of walls that are anti breaching, anti scaling. You're not supposed to be able to dig under them. Four are supposed to be made of concrete, four of steel and other materials. And those prototypes are sitting there. They were they were breached during a test last month. So they're continuing to work on those. But that's not what's going up in Texas today. And that's not going up in Arizona. So what is your best guess about whether by the end of the president's first term, we see a border wall like the type he promised? Best guess, uh, no, it, it, it won't happen by the end of his first term. If he's reelected, you know, that buys us another four years. So that's five, six years away. Uh, you know, if they're able to get these prototypes moving, but uh, again, they, they haven't, there's been no plan in place. There's been no price tag on actually making these prototypes a real thing on the border. So as of right now, if, if you give me, if you set a two-year deadline, I'd say no. They're, they're building border roads can take two years. Building these monstrous wall prototypes in real areas with canyons, with uh, washes, with arroyos, with rivers, no, not going to happen. Michelle Marisco is senior editor of the Frontera's desk for KJZZ. On the campaign trail, candidates make a lot of promises and they should be held to account for them as president. Now, President Trump has checked a lot of boxes. He's gotten two conservative judges on the Supreme Court. He's renegotiated or dropped out of trade deals. He's cracked down on immigration. On top of all of that, the economy is humming along. He's failed to follow through on some big ones, too, from repealing and replacing Obamacare to building that great, big, beautiful wall. Whether you think Trump has lived up to his promises depends a lot on how you identify politically. A recent Pew poll found that just 22 percent of Democrats, but 85 percent of Republicans, believe the president keeps his promises. But we also know that voters evaluate presidents on more than policy. They also take a measure of the man and his leadership and morality. This helps to explain why, despite a good economy and lots of promises either made or in the works, the president's job approval rating average is an anemic 42 percent. This November, voters will weigh in on whether they like the way the president and his party are leading the country. And it could all come down to Trump's biggest promise of all. Do you believe he's making America great? And that evaluation will have consequences for the next two years. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Amy Walter, and this is The Takeaway.